Part 9 of Batwing by Sax Romer. Read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Batwing. Chapter 25. Aylesbury's Theory. There were strangers about Cray's folly and a sort of furtive activity, horribly suggestive. We had not pursued the circular route by the high road which would have brought us up to the lodge, but had turned aside where the swing-gate opened upon a footpath into the meadows. It was the path which I had pursued upon the day of my visit to the Lavender Arms. A second private gate here gave access to the grounds at a point directly opposite the lake, and as we crossed the valley, making for the terraced lawns, I saw unfamiliar figures upon the veranda, and knew that the cumbersome processes of the law were already in motion. I was longing to speak to Val Beverley and to learn what had taken place during her interview with Inspector Aylesbury, but Harley led the way toward the tower wing, and, by a tortuous path through the rhododendrons, we finally came out on the northeast front and in sight of the Tudor garden. Harley crossed to the entrance, and was about to descend the steps, when the constable on duty there held out his arm. "'Excuse me, sir,' he said, "'but I have orders to admit no one to this part of the garden.' Oh, said Harley, pulling up short, but I am acting in this case. My name is Paul Harley. Sorry, sir, replied the constable, but you will have to see Inspector Aylesbury. My friend uttered an impatient exclamation, but turning aside. Very well, constable, he muttered. I suppose I must submit. Our friend Aylesbury, he added to me as we walked away, would appear to be a martinet as well as a walrus. At every step knocks, he proves himself a tragic nuisance. This means waste of priceless time. What had you hoped to do, Harley? Prove my theory, he returned, but since every moment is precious, I must move in another direction. Manuel had just opened the doors to a sepulchral-looking person who proved to be the coroner's officer, and— Manuel, cried Harley, tell Carter to bring the car round at once. Yes, sir. I haven't time to fetch my own," he explained. "'Where are you off to?' "'I am off to see the chief constable, Knox. Aylesbury must be superseded at whatever cost. If the chief constable fails, I shall not hesitate to go higher. I will get along to the garage. I don't expect to be more than an hour. Meanwhile, do your best to act as a buffer between Aylesbury and the women. You understand me?' "'Quite,' I returned shortly but the task may prove no light one, Harley." "'It won't,' he assured me, smiling grimly. "'How you must regret, Knox, that we didn't go fishing!' With that he was off, eager-eyed and alert, the mood of dreamy abstraction dropped like a cloak discarded. He fully realized, as I did, that his unique reputation was at stake. I wondered, as I had wondered at the guest-house, whether, in undertaking to clear Cullen Camber, he had acted upon sheer conviction, or, embittered by the death of his client, had taken a gambler's chance. It was unlike him to do so. But now, beyond reach of that charm of manner which Cullen Camber possessed, and discounting the pathetic sweetness of his girl-wife, I realized how black was the evidence against him. Occupied with these, and even more troubled thoughts, I was making my way toward the library, undetermined how to act, when I saw Val Beverley coming along the corridor which communicated with Madame de Stemmer's room. 
I had a welcome in her eyes which made my heart beat the faster. "'Oh, Mr. Knox,' she cried, "'I am so glad you have returned. Tell me all that has happened, for I feel in some way that I am responsible for it.' I nodded gravely. "'You know, then, where Inspector Aylesbury went when he left here, after his interview with you?' She looked at me pathetically. "'He went to the guest-house, of course.' Yes, I said, he was close behind us. And, she hesitated, Mr. Camber? He has been detained. Oh, she moaned, I could hate myself. Yet what could I say, what could I do? Just tell me all about it, I urged. What were the inspector's questions? Well, explained the girl, he had evidently learned from someone, presumably one of the servants, that there was enmity between Mr. Camber and Colonel Menendez. He asked me if I knew of this, and of course I had to admit that I did. But when I told him that I had no idea of its cause, he did not seem to believe me. No, I murmured, any evidence which fails to dovetail with his preconceived theories he puts down as a lie. He seemed to have made up his mind for some reason, she continued, that I was intimately acquainted with Mr. Camber whereas, of course, I have never spoken to him in my life, although whenever he has passed me in the road he has always saluted me with quite delightful courtesy. Oh, Mr. Knox, it is horrible to think of this great misfortune coming to those poor people!" She looked at me pleadingly. How did his wife take it? Poor little girl, I replied, it was an awful blow. I feel that I want to set out this very minute, declared Val Beverly and go to her, and try to comfort her, because I feel in my very soul that her husband is innocent. She is such a sweet little thing. I have wanted to speak to her since the very first time I ever saw her, but on the rare occasions that we have met in the village she has hurried past as though she were afraid of me. Mr. Harley surely knows that her husband is not guilty." "'I think she does,' I replied, but he may have great difficulty in proving it. And what else did Inspector Aylesbury wish to know? "'How can I tell you?' she said in a low voice, and biting her lip agitatedly she turned her head aside. "'Perhaps I can guess.' "'Can you?' she asked, looking at me quickly. "'Well, then, he seemed to attach a ridiculous importance to the fact that I had not retired last night at the time of the tragedy.' "'I know,' said I grimly another preconceived idea of his. I told him the truth of the matter, which is surely quite simple, and at first I was unable to understand the nature of his suspicions. Then, after a time, his questions enlightened me. He finally suggested, quite openly, that I had not come down from my room to the corridor in which Madame de Stemmer was lying, but had actually been there at the time. In the corridor outside her room? Yes. He seemed to think that I had just come in from the door near the end of the east wing and beside the tower, which opens into the shrubbery. "'That you had just come in!' I exclaimed. "'He thinks, then, that you had been out in the grounds!' Val Beverly's face had been very pale, but now she flushed indignantly and glanced away from me as she replied. "'He dared to suggest that I had been to keep an assignation.' "'The fool!' I cried the ignorant, impudent fool!" Oh, she declared, I felt quite ill with indignation, 
I am afraid I may regard Inspector Aylesbury as an enemy from now onward, for when I had recovered from the shock I told him very plainly what I thought about his intellect, or lack of it. "'I'm glad you did,' I said warmly. Before Inspector Aylesbury is through with this business, I fancy he will know more about his limitations than he knows at present. The fact of the matter is that he is badly out of his depth, but is not man enough to acknowledge the fact even to himself." She smiled at me pathetically. "'Whatever should I have done if I had been alone?' she said. I was tempted to direct the conversation into a purely personal channel, but common sense prevailed, and— "'Is Madame de Stemmer awake?' I asked. "'Yes,' the girl nodded. "'Dr. Rolston is with her now.' "'And does she know?' "'Yes. She sent for me directly she awoke, and asked me. And you told her? How could I do otherwise? She was quite composed, wonderfully composed. And the way she heard the news was simply heroic. But here is Dr. Rolston coming now." I glanced along the corridor, and there was the physician approaching briskly. "'Good morning, Mr. Knox,' he said. "'Good morning, doctor. I hear that your patient is much improved.' "'Wonderfully so,' he answered. She has enough courage for ten men. She wishes to see you, Mr. Knox, and to hear your account of the tragedy." "'Do you think it would be wise?' "'I think it would be best.' "'Do you hold any hope of her permanently recovering the use of her limbs?' Dr. Rolston shook his head doubtfully. "'It may have only been temporary,' he replied. "'These obscure nervous affections are very fickle. It is unsafe to make predictions. But mentally, at least, she is quite restored from the effects of last night's shock. You need to apprehend no hysteria or anything of that nature, Mr. Knox." "'Oh, I see!' exclaimed a loud voice behind us. We all three turned, and there was Inspector Aylesbury crossing the hall in our direction. "'Good morning, Dr. Rolston,' he said, deliberately ignoring my presence. "'I hear that your patient is quite well again this morning.' "'She is much improved.' returned the physician dryly. "'Then I can get her testimony. Which is most important to my case?' "'She is somewhat better. If she cares to see you, I do not forbid the interview.' "'Oh, that's good of you, doctor,' he bowed to Miss Beverly. "'Perhaps, miss, you would ask Madame de Stemmer to see me for a few minutes.' Val Beverly looked at me appealingly, then shrugged her shoulders, turned aside, and walked in the direction of Madame de Stemmer's door. "'Well,' said Dr. Rolston, in his brisk way, shaking me by the hand, "'I must be getting along. Good morning, Mr. Cox. Good morning, Inspector Aylesbury.' He walked rapidly out to his waiting car. The presence of Inspector Aylesbury exercised upon Dr. Rolston a similar effect to that which a red rag has upon a bull. As he took his departure, the inspector drew out his pocket-book, and, humming gently to himself, began to consult certain entries therein with a portentous air of reflection which would have been funny if it had not been so irritating. Thus we stood when Val Beverly returned, and— "'Madame de Stemmer will see you, Inspector Aylesbury,' she said, but wishes Mr. Knox to be present at the interview." "'Oh,' said the inspector, lowering his chin, "'I see. Oh, very well.'" Chapter 26 in Madame's room. Madame de Stemmer's apartment was a large and elegant one. From the window drapings 
which were of some light, figured, satiny material, to the bed-cover, the lampshades, and the carpet, it was French. Faintly perfumed, and decorated with many bowls of roses, it reflected in its ornaments, its pictures, its slender-legged furniture, the personality of the occupant. In a large, high bed, reclining amidst a number of silken pillows, lay Madame de Stemmer. The theme of the room was violet and silver, and to this everything conformed. The toilet service was of dull silver and violet enamel. The mirrors and some of the pictures had dull silver frames, and there was nothing tawdry or glittering. The bed itself, which I thought resembled a bed of state, was of the same dull silver, with a coverlet of delicate violet hue. But Madame's décolleté robe was trimmed with white fur, so that her hair, dressed high upon her head, seemed to be of silver, too. Reclining there upon her pillows, she looked like some grand dame of that France which was swept away by the Revolution. Immediately above the dressing-table I observed a large portrait of Colonel Menendez, dressed as I had imagined he should be dressed when I had first set eyes on him, in tropical riding-kit, and holding a broad-brimmed hat in his hand. A strikingly handsome, arrogant figure he made, uncannily like the Velasquez in the library. At the face of Madame de Stemmer I looked long and searchingly. She had not neglected the art of the toilet. Blinds tempered the sunlight which flooded her room, but that, failing the service of rouge, Madame had been pale this morning, I perceived immediately. In some subtle way the night had changed her. Something was gone out of her face, and something come into it. I thought, and lived to remember the thought, that it was thus Marie Antoinette might have looked when they told her how the drums had rolled in the Place de la Revolution on that morning of the twenty-first of January. "'Oh, Monsieur Knox,' she said sadly, "'you are there, I see. Come and sit here beside me, my friend. Val, dear, remain. Is this Inspector Asbury who wishes to speak to me?' The inspector, who had entered with all the confidence in the world, seemed to lose some of it in the presence of this grand lady, who was so little impressed by the dignity of his office. She waved one slender hand in the direction of a violet brocaded chair. "'Sit down, Monsieur l'Inspecteur,' she commanded, for it was rather a command than an invitation. Inspector Aylesbury cleared his throat and sat down. "'Ah, Monsieur Knox!' exclaimed Madame, turning to me with one of her rapid movements. "'Is your friend afraid to face me, then? Does he think that he has failed? Does he think that I condemn him?' "'He knows that he has failed, Madame de Stemmer,' I replied. "'But his absence is due to the fact that, at this hour, he is hot upon the trail of the assassin.' "'What?' she exclaimed. "'What?' and, bending forward, touched my arm. Tell me again, tell me again. He is following a clue, Madame de Stemmer, which he hopes will lead to the truth. Ah, if I could believe it would lead to the truth, she said, if I dared to believe this. Why should it not? She shook her head, smiling with such a resigned sadness that I averted my gaze and glanced across at Val Beverly, who was seated on the opposite side of the bed. If you knew, if you knew!" 
I looked again into the tragic face, and realized that this was an older woman than the brilliant hostess I had known. She sighed, shrugged, and— "'Tell me, Monsieur Knox,' she continued, "'it was swift and merciful, eh?' "'Instantaneous,' I replied in a low voice. "'A good shot?' she asked, strangely. "'A wonderful shot,' I answered, thinking that she imposed unnecessary torture upon herself. "'They say he must be taken away, Monsieur Knox, but I reply, not until I have seen him.' "'Madame,' began Val Beverly gently, "'Ah, my dear!' Madame de Stemmer, without looking at the speaker, extended one hand in her direction, the fingers characteristically curled. "'You do not know me. Perhaps it is a good job. You are a man, Mr. Knox, and men, especially men who write, know more of women than they know of themselves, is it not so? You will understand that I must see him again?' "'Madame de Stemmer,' I said, your courage is almost terrible." She shrugged her shoulders. "'I am not proud to be brave, my friend. The animals are brave, but many cowards are proud. Listen again. He suffered no pain, you think?' "'None, Madame de Stemmer.' "'So, Dr. Rolston assures me. He died in his sleep. You do not think he was awake, eh?' "'Most certainly he was not awake.' It is the best way to die, she said simply. Yet he, who was brave and who had faced death many times, would have counted it. She snapped her white fingers, glancing across the room to where Inspector Aylesbury, very subdued, sat upon the brocaded chair twirling his cap between his hands. And now, Inspector Aylesbury, she asked, what is it you wish me to tell you? Well, madame, began the inspector, and stood up, evidently in an endeavor to recover his dignity, but— Sit down, Mr. Inspector. I beg of you to be seated, cried madame. I will not be questioned by one who stands, and if you were to walk about, I should shriek. He resumed his seat, clearing his throat nervously. Very well, madame, he continued. I have come to you particularly for information respecting a certain Mr. Camber." "'Oh, yes,' said Madame. Her vibrant voice was very low. "'You know him, no doubt?' "'I have never met him.' "'What?' exclaimed the inspector. Madame shrugged and glanced at me eloquently. "'Well,' he continued, "'this gets more and more funny. I am told by Pedro, the butler, that Colonel Menendez looked upon Mr. Camber as an enemy, and Miss Beverly here admitted that it was true. Yet, although he was an enemy, nobody ever seems to have spoken to him, and he swears that he had never spoken to Colonel Menendez." "'Yes,' said Madame, listlessly. "'Is that so?' "'It is so, Madame. And now you tell me that you have never met him.' I did tell you so, yes. His wife, then? I never met his wife, said Madame rapidly. But it is a fact that Colonel Menendez regarded him as an enemy. It is a fact, yes. And now we are coming to it. What was the cause of this? I cannot tell you. 
Do you mean that you don't know? I mean that I cannot tell you." Oh, said the inspector, blankly. I see. That's not helping me very much, is it? No, it is no help, said Madame, twirling a ring upon her finger. The inspector cleared his throat again, then. There had been other attempts, I believe, at assassination, he asked. Madame nodded. Several. Did you witness any of these? None of them. But you know that they took place. Juan, Colonel Menendez, had told me so. And he suspected that there was someone lurking about his house? Yes. Also someone broke in? There were doors unfastened and a great disturbance, so I suppose someone must have done so. I wondered if he would refer to the bat-wing nailed to the door, but he had evidently decided that this clue was without importance, nor did he once refer to the aspect of the case which concerned voodoo. He possessed a sort of mulish obstinacy, and was evidently determined to use no scrap of information which he had obtained from Paul Harley. "'Now, madame,' said he, "'you heard the shot fired last night?' "'I did.' "'It woke you up?' I was already awake. Oh, I see. You were awake. I was awake. Where did you think the sound came from? From back yonder, beyond the east wing. Beyond the east wing? muttered Inspector Aylesbury. Now, let me see. He turned ponderously in his chair, gazing out of the windows. We look out on the south here. You say the sound of the shot came from the east? So it seemed to me. Oh! This piece of information seemed badly to puzzle him. And what then? I was so startled that I ran to the door before I remembered that I could not walk. She glanced aside at me with a tired smile, and laid her hand upon my arm in an oddly caressing way, as if to say, He is so stupid. I should not have expressed myself in that way. Truly enough, the inspector misunderstood, for— I don't follow what you mean, madame, he declared. You say you forgot that you could not walk? No, no, I express myself wrongly, madame replied in a weary voice. The fright, the terror, gave me strength to stagger to the door, and there I fell and swooned. Oh, I see. You speak of fright and terror. Were these caused by the sound of the shot? For some reason my cousin believed himself to be in peril, explained Madame. He went in dread of assassination, you understand. Very well, he caused me to feel this dread also. When I heard the shot, something told me, something told me that— She paused, and suddenly placing her hands before her face, added in a whisper, that it had come. Val Beverly was watching Madame de Stemmer anxiously, and the fact that she was unfit to undergo further examination was so obvious that any other than an Inspector Aylesbury would have withdrawn. The latter, however, seemed now to be glued to his chair, and— Oh, I see, he said. And now there's another point. Have you any idea what took Colonel Menendez out into the grounds last night?" Madame de Stemmer lowered her hands and gazed across at the speaker. 
What is that, Monsieur l'Inspecteur? Well, you don't think he might have gone out to talk to someone? To someone? To what one? demanded Madame scornfully. Well, it isn't natural for a man to go walking about in the garden at midnight, when he's unwell, is it? Not alone. But if there was a lady in the case, he might go." "'A lady,' said Madame softly. "'Yes, continue.' "'Well,' resumed the inspector, deceived by the soft voice, "'the young lady sitting beside you was still wearing her evening dress when I arrived here last night. I found that out, although she didn't give me a chance to see her.' His words had an effect more dramatic than he could have foreseen. Madame de Stemmer threw her arm around Val Beverly and hugged her so closely to her side that the girl's curly brown head was pressed against Madame's shoulder. Thus holding her, she sat rigidly upright, her strange still eyes glaring across the room at Inspector Aylesbury. Her whole pose was instinct with challenge, with defiance, and in that moment I identified the elusive memory which the eyes of Madame so often had conjured up in my mind. Once, years before, I had seen a wounded tigress standing over her cubs, a beautiful, fearless creature, blazing defiance with dying eyes upon those who had destroyed her, the mother instinct supreme to the last. For as she fell, to rise no more, she had thrown her paw round the cowering cubs. It was not in shape, nor in color, but in expression and in their stillness that the eyes of Madame de Stemmer resembled the eyes of the tigress. "'Oh, Madame, Madame!' moaned the girl. "'How dare he!' "'Ah!' Madame de Stemmer raised her head yet higher, a royal gesture, that unmoving stare set upon the face of the discomfited Inspector Aylesbury. Leave my apartment!" Her left hand shot out dramatically in the direction of the door, but even yet the fingers remained curled. Stupid, gross fool! Inspector Aylesbury stood up, his face very flushed. "'I'm only doing my duty, madame,' he said. "'Go! Go!' commanded madame. "'I insist that you go!' Convulsively she held Val Beverly to her side and although I could not see the girl's face, I knew that she was weeping. Those implacable flaming eyes followed with their stare the figure of the inspector right to the doorway, for he essayed no further speech, but retired. I also rose, and, Madame de Stemmer, I said, speaking, I fear, very unnaturally, I love your spirit. She threw back her head, smiling up at me. I shall never forget that look, nor shall I attempt to portray all which it conveyed, for I know I should fail." "'My friend,' she said, and extended her hand to be kissed." CHAPTER Twenty Seven, AN INSPIRATION Inspector Aylesbury had disappeared when I came out of the hall, but Pedro was standing there to remind me of the fact that I had not breakfasted. I realized that, despite all tragic happenings, I was ravenously hungry, and accordingly I agreed to his proposal that I should take breakfast on the south veranda, as on the previous morning. To the south veranda, accordingly, I made my way, rather despising myself 
because I was capable of hunger at such a time and amidst such horrors. The daily papers were on my table, for Carter drove into Market Hilton every morning to meet the London train which brought them down, but I did not open any of them. Pedro waited upon me in person. I could see that the man was pathetically anxious to talk. Accordingly, when he presently brought me a fresh supply of hot rolls, "'This has been a dreadful blow to you, Pedro,' I said. "'Dreadful, sir,' he returned. "'Fearful. I lose a splendid master. I lose my place, and I am far, far from home.' "'You are from Cuba?' "'Yes, yes. I was with Signor the Colonel Don Juan in Cuba.' And do you know anything of the previous attempts which had been made upon his life, Pedro? Nothing, sir, nothing at all. But the bat-wing, Pedro? He looked at me in a startled way. Yes, sir, he replied. I found it pinned to the door here. And what did you think it meant? I thought it was a joke, sir, not a nice joke, by someone who knew Cuba. You know the meaning of bat-wing, then? It is obia. I have never seen it before, but I have heard of it. And what did you think? said I, proceeding with my breakfast. I thought it was meant to frighten. But who did you think had done it? I had heard Signor Don Juan say that Mr. Camber hated him, so I thought perhaps he had sent someone to do it. But why should Mr. Camber have hated the Colonel? I cannot say, sir. I wish I could tell. Was your master popular in the West Indies? I asked. Well, sir, Pedro hesitated. Perhaps not so well liked. No, I said. I had gathered as much. The man withdrew, and I continued my solitary meal, listening to the song of the skylarks, and thinking how complex was human existence compared with any other form of life beneath the sun. How to employ my time until Harley should return I knew not. Common delicacy dictated an avoidance of Val Beverly until she should have recovered from the effect of Inspector Aylesbury's gross insinuations, and I was curiously disinclined to become involved in the gloomy formalities which ensue upon a crime of violence. Nevertheless I felt compelled to remain within call realizing that there might be unpleasant duties which Pedro could not perform, and which must therefore devolve upon Val Beverly. I lighted my pipe and walked out onto the sloping lawn. A gardener was at work with a big syringe, destroying a patch of weeds which had appeared in one corner of the velvet turf. He looked up in a sort of startled way as I passed, bidding me good morning, and then resuming his task. I thought that this man's activities were symbolic of the way of the world, in whose eternal progression one poor human life counts as nothing. Presently I came in sight of that door which opened into the rhododendron shrubbery, the door by which Colonel Menendez had come out to meet his death. His bedroom was directly above, and as I picked my way through the closely growing bushes, which at an earlier time I had thought to be impassable, I paused in the very shadow of the tower, and glanced back and upward. I could see the windows of the little smoke-room in which we had held our last interview with Menendez, and I thought of the shadow which Harley had seen upon the blind. I was unable to disguise from myself 
the fact that when Inspector Aylesbury should learn of this occurrence, as presently he must do, it would give new vigour to his ridiculous and unpleasant suspicions. I passed on, and, considering the matter impartially, found myself faced by the questions, who was the shadow which Harley had seen upon the blind, and with what purpose did Colonel Menendez leave the house at midnight? Somnambulism might solve the second riddle, but to the first I could find no answer acceptable to my reason. And now, pursuing my aimless way, I presently came in sight of a gable of the guest-house. I could obtain a glimpse of the hut which had once been Cullen Camber's workroom. The window, through which Paul Harley had stared so intently, possessed sliding panes. These were closed, and a ray of sunlight striking upon the glass produced, because of an over-leaning branch which crossed the top of the window, an effect like that of a giant eye glittering evilly through the trees. I could see a constable moving about in the garden. Ever and anon the sun shone upon the buttons of his tunic. By such steps my thoughts led me on to the pathetic figure of Isola Camber. Save for the faithful Ah Tsung, she was alone in that house to which tragedy had come unbidden, unforeseen. I doubted if she had a woman friend in all the countryside. Doubtless, I reflected, the old housekeeper to whom she had referred would return as speedily as possible. But pending the arrival of someone to whom she could confide all her sorrows, I found it almost impossible to contemplate the loneliness of the tragic little figure. Such was my mental state, and my thoughts were all of compassion, when suddenly, like a lurid light, an inspiration came to me. I had passed out from the shadow of the tower, and was walking in the direction of the sentinel yews when this idea, dreadfully complete, leapt to my mind. I pulled up short, as though hindered by a palpable barrier. Vague musings, evanescent theories, vanished like smoke, and a ghastly, consistent theory of the crime unrolled itself before me, with all the cold logic of truth. "'My God!' I groaned aloud. "'I see it all! I see it all!' End of chapter 27